Welcome to yet another episode of Off the Record uh, Show. I'm Aram Makumov, the host. Uh, thanks for tuning in. On the show, I'm interviewing well-known CEOs and VCs about their entrepreneurial journeys, how they built their businesses, raising money, hiring rock and pop stars, and how they didn't quit along the way. Uh, as a founder, you'll hear practical insights into their world, what they go through, psychology and the thinking uh, behind it so you can apply it to your company and get better at what you do. Uh, the guest that I have today uh, has an undergrad degree in neuropsychology, two law degrees, and a U.S. patents in AI and NLP-based technologies. Um, he was an entrepreneur. He was an Ernest and Young Entrepreneur of the Year finalist in 2018, and right now is the CEO of a healthcare and life sciences company called Acto Technologies. His name is Parth Khanna. Parth, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ram. It's such a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Well, I'm pretty excited to have you um, join us today. Uh, we were uh, we're working with with you guys on on uh, on your marketing initiatives. So having you on our show and learning about your business along the way, I think I I have a bit of a, of an edge or a head start on everybody who's going to be listening. But to bring it back, um, first question I wanted to ask you is around natural language processing technologies. You have a patent in it. Can you, can you share with us a bit about what is this technology and how do you apply it at Acto? Yeah, uh, Aram, firstly, uh, really awesome that we're, we're partners in crime in, in each of our businesses and friends uh, off the record. And in that spirit of friendship- And on and, the record. Uh, and on the record. <laughs> in that spirit, really excited to be here and uh, talk about my story at Acto and all the, all the exciting lessons we've learned along the way um, that can help other, other founders, hopefully. Uh, going back to my personal history, the NLP patent, uh, I have a few. Uh, I've just been so fascinated by language and uh, the way the, the technology, the, the nat uh, natural language processing technology has evolved over the years. And what's also been interesting is how it has become such a interwoven fabric to our day-to-day -day life. Um, how Alexa and Siri and all the voice AI assistants have just become, you know, our uh, our, our virtual friends uh, in our day-to-day, -day, so to speak. Um, my first patent in NLP was when I was in law school. Actually, I found that uh, I would study very little for my law exam, but I don't know how. I was doing fairly okay in terms of uh, beating the curve as they call it in law school. And uh, it was interesting, my roommate at the time was, he was the same way. He would skip the lectures with me. We would go to IHOP in Detroit, eat a lot of uh, chocolate chip pancakes and we're still beating the curve. And we started talking one day and um, uh, about how we study and uh, how we not, don't study a lot really. And it, it occurred to us that both of us were doing something very similar in our approach to how we were preparing for the exams and studying the curriculum, which was we were drawing a lot of mind maps. Um, and that was very interesting that we were both visual learners where the little classes that we did attend or little summaries that we read, we would take the information and create relational uh, flow charts and mind maps out of it. And we were really intrigued. Uh, so we did uh, what any two uh, uh, 
tech nerds would do. We, <laughs> we mapped out that technology and um, we wrote our own patents because we were in law school and we wanted to uh, flex our law muscle a little bit. And uh, actually I took my uh, second year law school tuition money and hired a couple of co-op students to commercialize that technology. Um, it was called Intellify. That project, um, we, didn't, we didn't hit revenue. Uh, we did a lot of R&D. I learned a lot about NLP and my love and fascination for NLP grew. And uh, while that project, uh, while that business didn't become profitable and eventually um, uh, went defunct, the love for NLP did carry forward. And now with Acto, we're super thrilled and pumped that we're actually bringing uh, life sciences industry's first voice AI technology uh, to market. Her name is Laika. It's like Alexa for life sciences, but I promised uh, my marketing team I won't be promoting on this podcast. So I'll pause there and pass back to you, Ron. Oh, awesome. Thanks, Para, for that background, which is a great segue to my next question, which is you tried something the first time around. You didn't get to that level that you wanted the business to be. But I think with Acto now, it, it's at that point where you have been able to successfully get to product market fit. So I want to I want to talk about that a bit more because I know you had your own struggles getting that along the way when you were building the business. Looking back at it now, you know, through this time that you've been building the company, what would you say you learned the most through that journey and process of relating and finding product market fit uh, at, at Acto? Yeah, it's around. That's a great question. And uh, with Acto, we've we've now hit that scale curve where it's, you know, we found the product market fit and we are, um, we're, we're scaling and growing like crazy and it's super exciting. And it's interesting how I always say that the growth of a startup happens in step functions where you have a set of problems that you need to solve. You solve for them, you get the traction and you grow, and then you maximize that organizational capacity and you're, uh, you're, you know, you're, you're busting at the seams and then you figure out the next, uh, set of, uh, set of challenges and you grow again. And then it really follows a step function. One of the main things that I've learned, uh, over the years, um, firstly, as a CEO from a, uh, from a psycho-emotional standpoint, i.e. inside the CEO's brain, I think humble confidence um, is super important when you're finding product market fit. I think you need to be humble enough to say, I don't have the answers. I don't know, especially if you're going into a new industry or new vertical um, where, um, where there is room for innovation and disruption. I think um, you need to be humble enough to listen yet you need to be confident enough to muster up the conviction to, to, to put your solution out there when you get to that solution. So I think in the problem solving part, when you're hearing the problem, try to take the bias out, lean in, understand the pain points that the customers have or your potential customers and just you know, let your mind just immerse yourself. And when you get to the solution, have the conviction to go out there and push it um, and learn from it. So it's it's a dance. It's a dance of humility and boldness. And I think that humble confidence is a it's a necessary mix there. And earlier on, like what 
<clears throat> I think you had a couple different attempts at trying to figure out product market market fit. It didn't hit like you didn't strike gold like from your first shot, right? So, yeah. What did you learn the first time, second time, or you know, if it was the third time that you actually hit it? Um, were there any unique challenges that you came across early on until you hit that kind of sweet spot? And if if there were, like, can you share some with us? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, so. I mean, we wandered the desert for a long time, and uh, I don't. I don't think we truly ever. Um, I think it's less about striking gold because it it's not going to jump at you in such a stark way where the customers aren't at least in B two B SaaS. From everything I know, um, even when we have very high traction, you know, you're growing ten x year over year and doubling and tripling after that. It's never that the customers will beat the path to your door. It always is refining and looking for signals in the noise. Uh, one of the things that every time I'm um, mentoring or advising uh, CEOs is, it's not going to be that romanticized. You know, one day you'll wake up and you'll just have this pep in your step, and sun will shine on you, and every customer will, you'll talk to is going to cut you a check. It's still going to be arduous. You're still going to have to go through the motions. But what, what, what I encourage folks to think about it is the probabilities and think about data clusters where on aggregate in this market, are we getting more signal than the noise? And that is what product market fit looks like. Um, it's not a clean lock and key. It's more a lot, of, it's, it's diffusive, it's intuitive. You're looking at the data and you're saying, you know what, we're going to build our base camp here and we're going to turn the base camp into ground floor, foundation, ground floor, second floor, and you build a skyscraper from there on. Um, yeah. And in our case, we went through, uh, we did different tests, different verticals. Uh, we actually started off as a consumer facing app and then pivoted into SaaS. Then uh, within SaaS, we were a corporate learning platform, then pivoted into a learning platform for the life sciences industry. Mm -hmm. um, and from there on, what we found was that it wasn't just um, sales training or one or two use cases. Um, it really, uh, within life sciences, it really was education in its totality within life sciences across the care continuum that they call is is need is a need for digital disruption. So we kept learning, and it really is layers upon layers. It's almost like three D printing. Um, uh, so my my main uh, guidance to other CEOs is, it's not going to be this magic moment. Um, but over an aggregate set of data points, you'll see the magic in its more holistic form. When you were looking for those signals. Um, I, I like what you said there, you know, separate out the signals from the noise. Um, signals can be tied to like North Star metrics or, you know, something like that. What would you recommend? It doesn't have to be for Acto specifically, but from a generalization perspective, what should a CEO or founder look for top three things to look for in terms of those signals? Yeah, I would say in, in the early days, uh, the first signal should be, um, qualitative and it starts at home, which is we've heard a bunch of customers out. We kind of have a rough idea of what, what their pain points are. 
Um, and this one may be just very idiosyncratic to me because I'm a product focused CEO. For me, the nucleus of the business is your core values translated into the product. Um, but uh, going back to your question, Aram, if I'm a CEO, the first thing I'm saying is, hey, we've, we've heard the customers, we generally know what their pain points are. Can I in earnest look at this product and just swoon over it? Like, can you just love your product? Um, I remember, man, when, uh, when we pivoted into life sciences, we started hearing the need for data and insights from the customers and they needed to show business impact of training. That was kind of the, the hot topic, top of mind issue. And uh, we had very little cash where we could have either continued building some horizontal, you know, non-life sciences capabilities, or we could build these dashboards for our uh, life sciences customers. And I remember after we did the design sprint and we kind of did the mock-up, these weren't live graphs at that point. They were just, here's our vision in a simulated web page. I couldn't stop thinking about those graphs for the next three or four days. Like I literally would close my eyes and I was like, wow, I can't wait till I sell the living out hell out of this thing. And that's the first sign, right? Like, are you so like, can you get yourself excited about what you're solving for? Because once you know generally what the pain points are, that's the first step. And I think that that is a necessary step in order for you to evangelize the customers and that goes to the second qualitative uh, layer, so to speak, which is, are your prospects or customers that you went back to with some sort of a solution, are they swooning over it? Um, one of the things that I would keep an eye out for was how many times is a customer using the word love or like in a demo? Uh, I know I need more hobbies, but I would lean in on that. It's like, oh, we love this. It's like, yes. And you see where their eyes pop up when they're, you're giving the demo. Um, and I think those things matter really early on. And then once you have those qualitative uh, factors giving you the conviction and you're broadening your net, you're talking to more folks, that's when the more CRM metrics come into play. You, you crack it in Excel sheets. Okay, you know how far along are the pipeline are we moving? What are the close rates? And then finally, the North Star metrics. Um, one of the one of the things my pops always said was, "Nothing speaks success like success." So if you're hitting your ARR numbers, man, so many sins are forgiven. Um, but yeah, or I'm hopefully hopefully. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's no, it's a great answer. Yeah, thanks, Parth. Um, talking about validation and uh, going through your um, story that you just shared, and I think um, the one I want to talk about and segue into is around. Um, around funding. Um, so through this show, we've, sp we've spoken to a lot of founders uh, about how they raised, why they raised, uh, how, how they did it. Uh, we found a lot of kind of commonalities uh, and similar you know, situations that arise, like people recommending, you know, you gotta trust your partners, you gotta make sure the investors are not just cutting you a paycheck, but they give you something more on top of that. Uh, be careful about giving up shelling out too many board seats, you know, losing voting control. Uh, and then like, don't raise more than you need, right? Don't raise too much because that will hurt you, impact you uh, later. 
Now, having said all that, I think in your last raise, you, you raised, I think, 14 million, if I'm not mistaken, uh, approximately. I wanted to ask you, going through that process, um, especially with the last round that you did, what stood out to you the most uh, in, in that experience? Yeah, uh, Aram, great question. This, prefacing it, this may be a longer answer. So <laughs> this is something that I'm, I'm super passionate about because it ties into uh, so much of the scale potential of the business. Um, so we've raised now over 20 million US dollars in total. Uh, I think we've done now five rounds uh, in total. And um, here's my, uh, my overarching philosophy on business building that ties into fundraise as well on how to fundraise. I think uh, in my view, building an organization, it's a very uh, human-centric endeavor. You start off as a founder or promoter to put in legal speak, uh, someone with the initial idea of what should exist in the world that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And everything from there on, Aram, in my view, is activating other human beings to make that vision into reality. And along the way, you're, you're bringing different people to join you in that journey and they play different roles. And frankly, investors are no different. Investors just have a view on that same vision and what they bring to the table is capital. Um, at the same time, my, my philosophy is it doesn't just need to be capital. There needs to be conviction for the folks leading that march, i.e. the founders or the management team and the management team. And they need to believe in the endpoint because things will get difficult along the way. You will have to pivot. Um, am, I, am I allowed to drop F-bombs on this? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, you will fuck up, right? <laughs> and it, that's where when investors have that conviction, it just changes the game because you're not just there as... Up, you know, reporting numbers to them or uh, for checks and balances and for financial returns, but they become as players around the table to help you solve, uh, solve for challenges. I'll give you an example. When, uh, when we were raising our Series A, um, we had one of the strategic investors firmed up uh, and we had a solid understanding with, uh, with Resolve, who's our now, uh, they led around and we were ready to close and we were poised to close in two or three weeks. And um, lo and behold, COVID happened. Uh, this was, so we closed in the middle of the pandemic. And um, when the pandemic happened, pharma stocks, I think it was uh, March 13th or one of the crazy days where March 11th, pharma stocks fell by 20, 30%. And in the spirit of that, human-centric relationship and just um, the relationship that we built with Resolve and the type of folks Resolve, uh, the Resolve firm is, we sat down and we said, how are we going to do this? Where yes, the stock market has crashed. We don't know we're going to enter a period of uncertainty. And uh, I was really moved when our investors said, you know what, our, we're backing you. Our conviction is on the founders and our conviction is behind the problem you're solving and the vision that you have. And we still closed around. 
And it was a substantial round. It was, I think, 11 and a half million US dollar round. Um, and we closed in the middle of the pandemic. Um, it goes back to, again, if you have an authentic relationship, just the way with your team members, right? Where if your best employee left the first time you all hit a road bump, you probably wouldn't have a business. Or if your mm -hmm. co-founders did the same thing, you probably wouldn't have a business. I don't think there should be a different standard to early stage investors. Uh, in late stage, if you go public, then of course, like you'll have shareholders from across the spectrum. But initially when you have choice, um, choose wisely. And I think that also requires more legwork from the, from the CEO because they need to create the position for the business where there can be choice. And um, in our case, thanks to the team's effort, we were always beating the plan that we put out to investors. And there was always more money around the table than we, we needed to take. So we had the ability to choose. Um, but overall, if I can summarize all of that in one word, be human uh, and build those humanistic relationships just the way you would with your employees and your customers and other stakeholders. That's oh, really interesting. Thanks for sharing that, Barth. Um, when, when we connected with you before, um, you, you, you had a strong opinion around <clears throat> the journey of a founder. And you talked about some great points just now about you know, the human elements of it, the conviction, um, standing behind what it is that you believe in and getting the investors to believe in more of you at the end of the day and what you're trying to solve for than you know, how, how you're really going to get there. Um, I want to ask you the I want to ask you this question around why, why do you go through the journey of being a founder? Because it's not easy. It's not for everybody. Yeah. It's super hard, very stressful. So what was your reason for doing everything that you're doing now? That's a great question, man. Um, <laughs> I will answer that without making it too metaphilosophical and uh, hopefully, I have to keep my tissue box at bay. Uh, so, <laughs> if you see something roll down my cheek, just uh, edit that out from the, from the post tape. Um, for me, very simply, Aram, it uh, it came down to I am on planet Earth for only so many years. How do I best make the use of that time here, while also something that gives me path to financial prosperity for myself and my family. So entrepreneurship kind of brings that together where I know that what we're doing has an impact. For example, in one of the big pillars of the healthcare system, life sciences is a $1.6 trillion industry that we're disrupting. Um, the end recipients and beneficiaries of that disruption are patients and doctors, and that's super exciting. So it gives, it gives you that spark and that joy every day and um, and you can make that impact. And uh, also knowing that there's 120 families waking up every day and they have a shot at that prosperity and livelihood as well. Um, that's really exciting, man. Um, when I started this business, I quit my law firm job. I was quarter million dollars in debt. Um, I was actually sleeping in my car because uh, my parents were in a different city than the law job that I got. And um, I, would, uh, I would go to Good Life Fitness every morning, steam my suit in the, in the sauna room. And, um, 
and pretend like I drove in from another city every morning. But from that to, I, I always say myself and my family, we embody the Canadian dream and that's thanks to entrepreneurship. Um, so that's on a spiritual level, what, what powers you. And then there's the other aspect of, you know, um, I'm a competitive individual. I love the scoreboard. I love the ARR number as it goes up. I love when we win, my team wins. It's really awesome. And it kind of knowing your why, uh, to put in uh, Simon Sinek's words, knowing your why is, and being clear on your why is going to help you pull through all the undulations uh, that you go through as a founder. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I, uh, I didn't know. It's, a, it's an interesting story. Um, and sp- having spoken to a lot of other founders, it's, it's really fucking hard for everybody trying to do any business, right? Like 90% of the businesses fail in their first year, right? So the stats are not in our favor. So kudos to you for getting this far. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun, Ram. Uh, no, I bet. I bet. I bet. Um, moving on to something else I want to discuss is um, company culture. And I know it's something that's very close and dear to you because you base a lot of your values to it uh, when you were building the company. Um, culture in general, like everybody tosses the word around. It means different things to different people. Uh, but nobody really talks about what it really is sometimes. Um, how, when you were starting off, uh, the company, how did you make culture uh, front-facing or one of your key foundational blocks in order to building up the company? Yeah, that's incre- incredible question and uh, something that's talked about a lot, but at the same time, not enough, in my opinion. Um, when I first started around, I, I read a few Harvard Business Review articles, and I thought culture and values were these cool things that you you talk about. And um, <laughs> I'll share something very personal. I don't think I've ever shared this with you before. There was one day when I was actually I went on Google and I searched, "What does a CEO do?" <laughs> I had <laughs> I, I I I've done I that before. Like, don't worry. I was like, well, I get like you know my co-founders like they 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 want me to. Uh, sell and help them out and do the product. But I was like, I keep hearing like CEO drives a vision and like CEO drives the values. I'm like, what is, what is, what does a CEO actually do? Um, Good news uh, to any of my board members and investors listening (laughs) now I know. And a lot of it, now I really do understand, I grasp what it means to drive the vision and what it means to drive the values. And here's what I've learned. Um, I think values are, um, first of all, human beings are, uh, we're, we're creatures of habit. There's things that we do in automated and semi-automated ways without knowing. And the second thing is, um, we're also um, creatures of decision-making. A lot of what happens in our lives is through decisions that we have to make uh, through the day. And if you combine those two things is, how do you get your team to make the right decision, either consciously or, or uh, subconsciously when it matters? And when, and here's the key, when no one's looking, where there is no oversight, there's no 
you know, there's no Zoom meeting. You're just by yourself and a customer asks you something. How do you be? What's your being? If your team member is sharing is, you know, maybe they're looking distressed. What do you do in that situation? Uh, and there's so many. I mean, I'm just being facetious in these examples, but there's literally thousands of instances every day that your team has to make those decisions. And frankly, you will never be there. So your values and culture is the membrane around the organization. And uh, it happens a lot of it subconsciously as leaders. We're always sending signals. Um, and that's, that's why one of the things that we did as our co as co-founders is we sat down uh, and we also involved some of our uh, leaders in the in the mix and we said, hey, we've gone through all these pivots as an organization. We've gone through so much uh, around we asked that same question, why are we doing this? And the answer to what came out of that exercise were our core values. And uh, um, for the for our listeners, like Acto's core values, our values, be human, bend the spoon, comes from the movie Matrix, uh, be the painkiller and uh, uh, change lives. So that's great now that we have those. Now the harder part is for us to live those out every day. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll pause here. Um, I can obviously keep going about this topic for days. <laughs> no, it's great. So when you... When you set aside the time and you spent uh, time with your co-founders to figure out, okay, how do we define these core values? How did you make sure that what you came up with resonated well with everybody else in the team that was there at the time, but then any new people that joined the company? Yeah. Uh, Aram, I would say, so actually this was our second attempt at coming up with our core values. The first time we came up with core values was very different. I read some articles online. Uh, some of them were HBR articles and uh, a lot of great insight in there. But the way I executed was I was like, okay, so we need to define kind of what the company ideals are. And I came up with a 15 point list of, you know, uh, action over inaction, um, and there's like, I can't even remember them. And there was these 15 points of things that were like, kind of like guidelines to the team. It's like, hey folks, this is how we should be. And um, uh, the second time we did the exercise, one of our advisors, we involved them too. And he's like, Parth, can you list out your 15 core values? And I think just like right now, I came up with like one or two. And he said, well, this is a problem. If you can't remember them, how do you expect folks to know them and apply them? That's why we kind of distilled all of that down into four. We made it sticky, right? Be human, change lives, bend the spoon, be the painkiller. Also, it's no accident that it ties into our mission, which is to uh, disrupt life sciences companies and their education. So there's their brand aligned, so to speak, they're sticky. And it's something that we can throw around and discuss in our day-to-day -day conversations where you know, if you're looking at a candidate and you're like, hmm, they have a lot of the bend the spoon mindset. Do they have the painkiller mindset? Or this person's really good at being the painkiller and bending the spoon. Can they be human while they do that? So it's just, I would say one thing that folks can do if they're listening to this is make it so simple and sticky 
that it becomes a part of your day-to-day uh, discourse at your organization. And that's really where it matters. Uh, other, otherwise, it's just shelfware. Yeah. No, I mean, you, something that you got to always reference in everything that you do on a daily basis, who you hire. Um, I really like the idea is like, can this person bend the spoon, right? Give me an example of how they've done it before or how they will do it. So that's great. Um, I love it. Simple, actionable. Yes, sir. Um, next question I want to ask, Parth, is something you brought up before, which I wanted to unpack, which was you said, I understand talent at scale. I didn't quite get it what that meant at the time, but I'd love to, I'd love for you to tell me the meaning of that. Yeah. Um, when I first, uh, as we were going through our first few waves of growth, I, um, I thought that one of the ways to, um, one of the ways to scale and grow is just a, you brute force. Like you just, things that are working, you do more of them. Uh, you create efficiency, you create processes, you get better systems. And um, there's, there's what I'm learning now is there comes a time where capacity, like you need to build up your organizational capacity and muscle that's commensurate to your goals. And that's where a lot of this will become uh, a game of how you treat your people and how do you attract talent and how do you take care of um, uh, take care of your people? It's um, uh, the organization. This whole engine is um, your team coming together to to get to that that goal or that north star, that making that vision into reality in the world. So naturally, just people are just. It, it really does start with the people. I know it's cliche, people first and, and whatnot, but it really is your human capital is the biggest line item in, in your, in your PL. And if it's not, then you're probably running a super efficient uh, organization <laughs> and you probably don't need to listen to me at that point. Um, but your human capital is the biggest line item. Yeah. That's where, um, that's where it matters. Talent is everything is, uh, is what one of my biggest lessons has been. Yes. The product is there. It's great. Uh, customers are there. That's great. All of that, the genesis of your organization starts with your folks, your people, your team. And at what point did, uh, you come to realize the significance of that? Was there like a, like a Holy shit moment? Like I can't scale until I, you know, figure this out or like, I've reached a point that, you know, I can't take this any further until I figure this out. Like, was there any like moment in time that you could relate this to? Yeah. Two things um, where one are, we have an amazing team and the initially as founders, you kind of have a lot of tacit knowledge. So you, you know, um, you're being pulled into different conversations and you have your input and I found that over time, my input just became marginal. Like I wasn't adding a lot of value to conversations um, where, and that's where, and, and frankly, the deliverables and the output would started getting better than I would have. And that's when I realized, oh, you know, this is amazing where good people that are motivated and super skilled and smart, that's this, this is much bigger than me. Um, I know this probably makes me sound like an egomaniac, uh, recovering egomaniac, but I, 
I realized that there's power in, uh, in the team coming together, working amongst each other, and you close bigger deals, you close them faster, and it's a process to basically making the business less founder dependent and decentralizing the business. And we're going through that right now uh, ourselves, and it's a continual, continually evolving process. Uh, the second thing around that we realized was you just need hands, right? You just need more hands and more capacity at some point. Uh, so in our case, when we uh, saw that the demand way outstripped what our capacity was, there's we unlocked all this TAM that, um, that we wanted to capture and we could capture. That's where it's been super top of mind for us to bring in amazing talent and, uh, and set them up for success by empowering them. Okay, very interesting. And I'm assuming that part of that realization of, uh, you know, we have this massive TAM, we need more talent, is when you as a, as a, as a CEO and with your co-founding team decided we might need to go and get outside capital to help us kind of fulfill this potential opportunity. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's correct. And uh, from my conversations with other founders, a lot of people said that once you get on that kind of fundraising bandwagon, you're kind of on it. <laughs> and you're on it for uh, an exit, an acquisition or whatever it is. It's something that you just have to keep, keep going towards. Is that true? It is. It is. I mean, look, it does, it does feel like, uh, it can feel like a treadmill. But I think the more important <laughs> like question is... Um, <laughs> More important question is, um, A, is your business right for that, right? Uh, and then the second bigger question is to understand why those expectations are in place from your VCs. Mm -hmm. And uh, for that, and it's taken me a while and I'll, I'll share my, my lesson there is, you almost have to zoom out and look at your business kind of in, in space and see you're taking capital translating results and growth, and that's increasing your enterprise value. And those returns are going back to your shareholders, which is also the investors. Mm -hmm. And the reason why a certain set of investors want you to continue having growth rates is their LPs have an expectation on them to drive certain IRR, which is their return rate uh, and the total capital that they need to distribute out after a certain period of time. Right. So once you understand that big picture, uh, it's a choice as a founder that you're making. It's who you're taking a capital from is going to dictate what kind of returns you have to show on that capital, which is going to dictate your strategy because they are going to be an important player around the table. Um, so that's the big picture. And I encourage CEOs to even, you know, not in super great detail, but at least directionally understand you know, you can, in your diligence process, in your reverse diligence, you can ask uh, the investors, what kind of returns are your LPs expecting off of you? Because that will dictate how much uh, forward propelling motion that they would want from the business. And there's some investors that will put in external capital and will be okay for you to hit profitability in five years or 10 years. Mm -hmm. Maybe because their investors are expecting, their LPs are expecting profitable businesses. Other folks will just say, hey, grow at all costs. These are two ends of the spectrum that I've seen. And they'll dictate your strategy differently. So um, I would say it's nuanced. 
in yeah. and you as a ceo have the choice to not all external capital is created equal some will create a really fast treadmill and some will create a brisk walk and it's your choice and the question in perspective question is is my business ready for a you know 45 degree angle at 10 speed treadmill or can i go on one one speed uh, i i don't remember being on a treadmill since uh, covid started so i'm i'm, spec- <laughs> I'm, I'm speculating this is from far distance memory <laughs> no it's it's great and that's so true and something that you mentioned there is something that actually hasn't come up on the show which is when you're doing the reverse due diligence i think it's super important to ask that question your lps what kind of return are they investing and in how quick because can my business sustain this? Am I going to like overstretch myself to try to fulfill these obligations you're setting out for me? Like, do I want to have a life, right? <laughs> that's a question you should probably ask, ask yourself. But uh, no, I love it. That's, that's great. A great insight there, Parth. A um, couple more questions for you. I wanted to ask, <clears throat> you've, you've been around in a while. You've, you've come across a lot of conventional wisdom being thrown at you. Um, you know, people matter, right? You said it right? That's one. Uh, scaling is hard, uh, is, is like another one. What, what are some other ones that, uh, that you would say are at the top of that list? Yeah. Um, I would say around, I'd actually double click on one that, uh, that you mentioned, which is, uh, scaling can be difficult. Uh, and it's, it can also be a lot of fun where if you do the right things, and I think in terms of scaling, the most important thing is to um, forward, uh, be forward looking as a CEO and see two or three steps ahead where folks aren't seeing and uh, having the conviction to make decisions, uh, which is I'd add one more to the, to the list, which is one of my favorite ones that I've learned. It is decision over precision. It's a lot better to make the call and give your team guidance and if you need to pivot downstream, you can pivot. It's okay. It'll be fine. Um, but make a call. Just if, if the teams come to you on a meeting and said, hey, we need guidance on this. If you think you have 50% of the data to make a call, make that call. And if you need more data, be precise in terms of, okay, what data do I need before I make this decision? Put decision reminders on your calendar if you're sitting on a decision. Mm-hmm. but make the call your team firstly as a ceo things that are landing on your desk means folks haven't been able to figure it out and every day that you sit on a decision there's three four five ten people that don't know what to do yeah. so make the call uh, decision over precision i love that it's um there are very few decisions that would really kill the business uh, but what will kill the business is if the team is not focused in their execution, which starts from indecisiveness. Mm-hmm. So make the call as a CEO, decision over position. Awesome. Awesome. Um, on that same kind of question uh, playing field, what do you believe that other CEOs would disagree with you on? That's a great question. Um, what will they disagree with me on is the extent to, I don't think there's, um, I think the, the extent to which you can be transparent with your, uh, with your investors and the type of relationship that you can build with them. 
um, I, I, I fully interwoven from our first angel investor uh, that put the first capital in all the way to our current investors. I get on calls with them. I give them a full debrief. I don't hold back. I lay it out for them as it occurs in my mind in real time. So if we are having a good quarter, bad quarter, we're running into big problems. I'm just, I err on the side of over-communication. Um, I just, I, I don't play the dance with the investors. It's like, hey, look, we're building this together. We're on the same journey. Here's what's happening. Here's what I think. And where I don't know the answer is I say, I'm figuring this out. Let me get back to you. And I always try to share a plan and then beat the plan. And um, yeah, I don't, um, I think some, some founders would, they, they put up a, uh, they have a persona of, hey, I'm a CEO that knows everything. I'm in full control. It doesn't have to be that way. You can be authentic with your investors, just the way you can be authentic with your team and your co-founders. It's, uh, it's all love, man. At the end of the day, we're trying to do something special and meaningful and we're not perfect, but we'll figure it out. We're all here. We're doing our best. Awesome. Two kind of like personal questions, which are a bit unusual. Uh, one is if your company were to go bankrupt today, and I'm not saying it will, but who knows, right? What would you do and why? Uh, great question. If the company was going bankrupt, firstly, not going to let that happen. Uh, <laughs> in the, let's say we're in a parallel universe and uh, space time have bent uh, and there's a rip in the space-time fabric, and this happened. I would first and foremost, my uh, I would have an obligation to our customers, our team members, and the investors. I wouldn't prioritize one over the other. Um, first thing I'd probably do is share with the team uh, because they need to know and they deserve to know. Uh, folks, their livelihood is tied to it. Their mortgages are tied to it. I mean, it's that's what's most important. And I would also share with them that we'll come up with a plan. We will transition thoughtfully and meaningfully. And uh, I would give them confidence because something like this can be extremely nerve-wracking for folks. And I would, uh, after that, I would share with uh, the investors, the customers, and then we would come up with a plan and try to exceed expectations on the plan. We, um, one thing I, I say to my team is, even when sometimes you lose a customer, always offboard them with the same grace that you onboard them with. So uh, whether it's employees or customers, and that's what we'll try to do is, we'll uh, be as graceful in winding down the business that we would be in winding up, building up the business. Uh, Aside from that, I'd probably uh, sleep for like 12 to 14 hours, man, because I'm thinking that would be pretty heavy. And uh, I'll get back up and think about what else do I need to do while I'm on planet Earth uh, nice. to make sense. Nice. Last question. And you touched, I wanted to explore that a bit. You said nerve wracking. What is it that makes you nervous? Good question. Uh, podcasts? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're doing great. Don't worry. <laughs> Uh, what makes me nervous and a lot of things. Um, I think there's as human beings, there's a fear of unknown. Every time the business goes through that inflection point, um, there's 
I um, sometimes I'm hard on myself. I'm like, hey, what's going to happen? We're making, you know, for example, um, when you right now we're doing a lot of hires, like we're scaling like crazy. And I always think like, okay, how are we going to keep that membrane intact? Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, it is, it is, it does give you anxiety. At the same time, the good thing about nervousness is there's an antidote to it, which is action. When you're nervous and you keep yourself moving and in action, uh, it cuts through the nervousness and gives you confidence and uh, courage is a muscle that you build over time. So uh, for me at this sure. point, when I get nervous, I get moving. That's it's as simple as that. The driver. Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. Parth. Amazing. I uh, can't thank you enough. So much great uh, insights and points that I'm sure all of our listeners are going to really, really appreciate and hopefully apply. Uh, so thank you so much. Thank, thank you, Ram. And uh, actually, I had uh, uh, to your last question, I had actually prepared a quote that I wanted to share with you, and maybe oh, yeah? that'll be a, a good, go uh, good, good place to end our conversation. Yeah. Uh, so this is one of the quotes that um, uh, every time we've gone through this inflection point, and I have felt nervous, and I've mustered up the courage to get on the other side, this quote just gushes back into my mind. So I'll, I'll share that with you. Um, here it is. It's by Ralph Waldo Emerson, by the way. And the quote is, when a resolute young fellow steps up to the great bully, the world, and takes him boldly by the beard, he's often surprised to find it come off in his hand and that it was only tied to scare away the timid adventurers. Oh, and uh, yeah, so, you know, uh, once you get through it, you realize, you know what, it wasn't that bad and uh, we'll, we'll just be fine. I love that quote. Thank you. Thank, thank you, for, you Ram. For sharing this that. was amazing. I enjoyed it so much. And uh, thank you for all of our dear listeners uh, for tuning in, supporting the show, following us on LinkedIn. We don't take it for granted and we really appreciate everything that you, that you give us. So this was another off the record episode uh, with an awesome founder. Thank you again, Parth. And we'll be back here again soon. So stay tuned. We are proud.